This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid and the Web Yeshiva. Recently, I had a very interesting experience when I accompanied Rabbi Chaim Bravender and a group of students from Yeshiva University on a tour of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Rabbi Bravender has long had an interest in the relationship between art and the religious experience and the potential for the exposure to great visual art as a key factor in awakening something within religious life and observance. He's described this in various pieces of writing and other work in the field, which can be accessed through our website at www.atid.org. By way of introduction, at the entrance to the museum, he had the following to say. I find certain art inspirational for me personally, and I'm going to try to share that with you. Now, you know probably that art has been studied for many different angles. Like I can look at a painting and say, when, where, how, what, what was the painter doing when he was painting the painting? Now, for, for our discussion, all of these things don't interest me at all. I would like with you just to look at a painting. The three works of art we encountered can all be viewed online on the Israel Museum website at www.imj.org.il. Our thanks to the museum administration for facilitating our visit. The first work was Rembrandt's St. Peter in Prison, a painting from 1631. What's it called? St. Peter in Prison. St. Peter, now it's, it's, the fact that uh, he called it St. Peter in Prison is probably because he wanted to sell it. But really what you're probably looking at is a Jew who lived down the block from Rembrandt and who posed for this painting, which he then called the way he called it. But what do you see? Do you see anything? I mean, Rembrandt is considered to be a great painter. You know, the generations have all kind of put the stamp of approval on anything Rembrandt did, and there probably is some reason for that. His hands are red and his arms are white. Yeah, okay, but what does that mean to you? Well, does it tell you anything? I mean, it's good you notice. It's true that if you notice things, that's very good. But well, what, what, what is there? I mean, it's a painting of an old man sitting on his knees, probably in some sort of jail. So he's in prison, but he has the keys right next to him? Yeah, but you're saying pshat. I'm not so interested in pshat. I say pshat. I would say, like, okay, we know that this is a, a man, and we know there's light, and we know there's dark, and we know he has hands, and they have keys. But you know all that. There's now, is there anything else there? There's no, like, specific religious... Like no, like I. But a feeling. Does it give you a feeling of some sort? What? Despair. That's good. There's the tongue in the middle of his mouth. The tongue in the middle of his mouth. I I don't I don't know. But why did you answer my question? Does it does it evoke a feeling? Uh, of despair. Is there another word that somebody would like to use? Hopelessness. Okay. So would you say, would you say, 
would, would you say that despair is attractive? Like I, I, I looking at it because I, I like the despair. Yeah, well, I like the hopelessness. Well, it's try, he's trying to make you sympathize with him because he's a saint. No, no, he, he's not a saint. He's just a guy. The painter you just called. No, but the light is like showing that he's some holy man. There's no light a holy. Source. Why do you think he's holy? There's no light source, and it's just his light shining on him. Ah, so you think him. you think that the light? That's also interesting. You think that light is meaningful. Right, that you have to look at the light. It's not... It's so an old man who's in despair, in a kind of hopeless situation, but he has this other side to him of sanctity, of kedusha, from the light. That's what you say, right? It's like, it's like Moshe Rabbeinu was born in the light. That there was light when he was born. So that's what you see. So that's... Uh, that's it. Now, why, why is that, might that be important? The despair, the hopelessness, the light. Well, if you say, as you say, or as you've all said, that there's despair down, that's negative, and there's light, positive, right, some source of light. So, how does the composite of the despair and the light kind of relate to each other. So, so like, what's the message that I could take from this? I mean, I'm making up the message, but what message might I take? No matter how hopeless you feel, there's always hope. Which means what? What do we call that? <laughs> All right, good. Good, you know. In other words, we have sources that are like that. We have this idea that we have free will, and free will means that we can create the situation that we're in, and we know that you know, despair never entirely turns out the light. And so, if we think about it, I think, we can sympathize with what the painting is saying. It's actually saying it, that there is that people are in, can be in despair and yet have some notion of light that still to take them out of the despair. I think that's good. What else? Well, I mean, so what's special about a painting? You know, what's, you know, all these things that we said are words and parts of sentences and what's special about a, a painting? that differentiates it from us talking about the painting. It's easier to, to attach oneself to an image. You mean like, I could think that that's me? I mean, there's that relatability. I have a white beard. I'm not sure. It's, it's the human element. There's that human element. If you can relate to a human being, well, that the difference between, uh, uh, say, uh, the written word, like a, an essay, and a painting, is that an essay flows, and a painting is about a, about an instant. It, you can interpret it. In it just makes the instant into always. It's always that way. It's always this choice between despair and light. Always. 
And that sometimes could be helpful to us, you know, like we think about what we're going to do or what we're going to be or how we're going to, so that this idea, I think, that despair and light work together is an idea that might be attractive to us. Now, why it is, why it is that, um, that Rembrandt was able to capture this idea in a way that has lasted, that people have thought about it, spoke about it, I don't know. But I think it could be, on some level, inspirational. I think a picture like this hanging in a hospital could inspire the people, not the people who donate the money, perhaps, but the people who are actually sick. It's a kind of a, it's a kind of a statement that even in a bad situation, everybody has a choice. Everybody has a choice to make. He's got to grab onto the choice. That's what I think about this Rembrandt. Somebody want to say something? Add something? When you walk into this room, why is it this painting that draws you? Is what? Why is it that this painting, when you walk into this room, yeah. with these seven or eight or ten paintings here, why is this one as opposed to, you told us about this painting in and of itself. Just glancing around, why is it that draws you to this one to explain it? You could have explained any of these. Uh, well, explain is not explain, uh, is not so much that's so much my interest. My, my interest, yeah. So, so you could react to whatever you want. That's I mean, there's probably a well because this this uh, uh, painting is a great expression of that idea, and other paintings are not so great an expression of that of that idea. But everything about this painting draws me to that conclusion that there's something active going on. It's not about something. You see, there's no... This old man, he doesn't exist, and this light, it doesn't exist, except that it does exist for me. It's an instant in time that exists for me. And that instant in time can be helpful for organizing kind of your feelings about things. What? So comment out loud. Um, so what makes it sound, I think, is that it's got the most distinct frame. It doesn't seem, with all these little things, it doesn't seem like a very odd frame. Yeah. Well, do you, do you focus, when you look at something like that and it speaks to you, do you focus just on the total image, or do you take in the details, like the keys there on the side, or do they are they important for the way you frame your reaction you, to the you, picture? It grows. You know, it grows. Suddenly you see that there are keys. Keys open the door to something. But those keys are not in his coat where they would be if they really opened up the doors to something that he knew about. But they're sort of lying there, either in disuse. He's unable to use them. He doesn't know what the keys open the doors to. But they do open the door to something. Right? So maybe the first time you see the painting, you wouldn't sort of think about the door, the keys so much. But then later on, you might. Later on, you might think about the keys, about the bag, about what the floor is made of, about the wall that he's leaning against, is what it means to be in jail. You know, there are no windows, there's no air, there's no, nothing is open. All these things come to you. It don't always come to you the first time around. Sometimes you have to 
invest a little bit more effort and energy, but you invest the effort and energy in paintings that you think have potential, can be helpful. So I think this is a helpful, a helpful painting. I think it describes the despair that can come in life from being unable to do what you want to do, and yet the hope that might spring eternal for a person who, who is in the midst of that kind of despair. And feeling things strongly is what is good for Jews when they think about themselves. I mean, I don't mean Jews as opposed to non-Jews, but I mean Jews because they're the people that I know about. Right? The Jews are, are, um, are encouraged to, to think about their lives very seriously, right? Somehow to relate God to what is going on and, and other things as well. So I think that this Rembrandt helps me. It helps me to think that way. I mean, I don't think that that's what Rembrandt's in, uh, interest was, or that was what he was thinking about. I don't know anything about that, and I doubt it. I think he really wanted to paint an old man, and then he sold, wanted to sell it, so he called it St. Peter's. But uh, what he left was something quite remarkable and something very difficult to repeat, and that the painting induces strong feeling strong feeling about uh, uh, these components of life that are so difficult to grasp at. So what makes a great painting, what makes a great painting great is that it affects me in some way. It doesn't just speak to me, but it tells me who I am. It forces me to consider uh, myself in the light of the painting that was, that was painted. And even though, you know, if you study, uh, if you would read up on the life of Rembrandt, what he did and where he lived and his wives and his children, you wouldn't find that he was such a profound thinker about things. But he had this talent to put thoughts that he might not have even been able to express into the painting. They're right, they're right there. So this is, uh, this is the first painting that I thought we should look at, because I like it. The second stop on our tour focused on Impressionism, as we stood before Paul Gauguin's 1899 still life. Okay, this is a room. It's a room of Impressionist painting. Impressionist painting is exactly what it says. You look at something and you draw your impression of it. So it's not exactly the details, but kind of, it's a little fuzzy sometimes. Because you want to draw what you think it looks like, which is not always the same as what it actually looks like. So you know that one of the most difficult kinds of undertakings that artists do is called is called still life this is a still life it's a painting of things that you find very commonly around the house and it was printed by Gauguin it was painted by Gauguin and it has a bowl some fruit in it a pitcher another kind of bowl and uh, for some reason, 
<laughs> no, I don't mind that. Just don't let me cross that line. Thank you. Um, is it, look, why would an artist paint a thing like that? Paint something so conventional and so regular. There's a table and there's a tablecloth and there's that bowl with the fruit in it and another bowl and some more fruit off there to the side. Well, what do you think? Kind of depressing. I, don't think, I think we, we left it's depressing. What? You think it's depressing? Extremely depressing. Well, okay. I'm not sure if you're right. Honestly, feel depressed looking at Well, let's say it's not depressing. Well, what, why would you want to paint that? I mean, I understand that as an exercise. You play musical, musical instruments. Then you play oh, the guitar. Who play? And what do you play? You know there are etudes. You know etudes are like me- meaningless musical uh, things in order to practice with your fingers, your hands, right? You know. You know. So it could be that when the artist drew this fruit, that's what he meant. He meant, I'm practicing. I'm practicing painting. I want to practice the colors. I want to practice the sky, and I want to practice the table or the wall, the back wall. But it could be, it could be there was something else. It could be there was something else. What could this artist have possibly meant? What could the artist have possibly meant by painting a bowl of fruit? No emotion in the fruit, is there? considered to represent the um, mortality of humans, like people who do not because um, I think the roundness of the species. The thing what? The round, I think because the roundness of the species. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's what they represent. That's why Gauguin painted this bowl of fruit, because no, he saying. thought that it was a great way to represent life. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, they also represented life by painting people. I, I don't go for that. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't go for that. I don't think people live in a, in their uh, uh, in the metaphoric imagination. You know, it's a way of explaining it, but it's not the it doesn't hit home for me. What could the artist have been? Could be that he had nothing else to draw. His models were off for vacation or something, so he drew. So, so you know, um, let me try to explain it this way. If a person, if you go into one of these tourist stores, you know, in the line, and they sell you like a cup, a wine cup, or they might sell you a extra box, or they might sell you a secretary. Right, so which are you going to be drawn to? I hope you say secretary. Because the secretary is something real. Whereas an extra box and a wine cup, they're not so real. They're not so real because they, they don't do anything. They just hold the wine or hold the estrogen, but they don't do anything. Save the Torah. That's something. So that inanimate objects, even though they seem to be all in the category of sacred in some way, are not all the same. They're not, 
you know, save the terror. It's not like a wine cup. So how would you put an apple into that, uh, into that grouping? Like you have a wine cup, you have Astro Bucks, you have a safe terror, and now you have an apple. So where do you put the apple? Well, it depends what you see. Right? The apple has different meaning for different people. For a hungry person, who wants to eat an apple, I mean, it has one meaning. But for a person who is thinking about Adam and Chava and Gan Eden, and whether or not the fruit that they ate on the tree was an apple, he might be drawn, that person might be drawn to looking at the apple with greater intensity and sincerity. And he might say, oh, that's an apple. That is an apple. That's a real apple. You know, the apple, it changed the course of the history of the world. So when you look at things, they're not easily objectivized. You can't say, I'm looking at an X. But it depends who's looking. And it depends what the context of the looking is. So along comes the artist, and the artist says, look, these things, they're important. They grant life. They're food. They, they can be distributed in a way that is... Uh, that gives joy in the world, that like has art sort of a, a value. The distribution of the material is important. It looks like something. So along comes the artist. The artist says, that's what I see. I see important. I see significance. I see the history of the world. I see that. And all of that I see in this moment of the still life. I see the still life as being something more significant. Now, the artist is not talking to me. But when I see the care with which he did it, with the kind of the distinction that he gave each and every object, with the organization that he was so concerned about, all of that leads me to think that this is something very important. So he's communicating to me. He's communicating to me the things that allow me to live, the things that allow me to be. They're very important. And how you look at them is very important. So what do you see? Anyone want to help me say something? Look at that still life again. Should I give you another five minutes? Yeah, please. In the listening book, you call them impression, impressionist thing, because it's the way the artist looks at it more specifically. Well, when we're looking at the Rembrandt, we also ask the same question. That we point out to the key to see the light. If you're like, no, no, there's so much more behind it. <coughs> any, any piece of art impressionistic? Is Susan? Ah, I understand. You're probably right, but impressionist is the name of a period oh, of art that was a little less uh, sharp in the way this designated things. Okay. It was uh, there's some Pizarros over there. Where's the Pizarro? So you see, Pizarro, he, he drew it with dots. He, he put in, he put in dots and, and therefore when you look at it, it looks a little unclear. And he, he felt that by doing that, he was really getting you to look at something. Because that's how it really looks until you focus. You know, it's not like you see it clearly. You see it unclearly. 
And then you have to focus on it and focus on it and focus on it so you see it much more clearly. And that, as Pizarro helped you. He helped you because he, he helped you to think that you don't really see it until you look very hard at seeing it. So this is a, also an impressionist painting because it's, again, it's not like Rembrandt where all the lines were clear and all the distinctions were there. But here, uh, just the idea that you could look at something that is prosaic, regular, every day, and see something in it, that was also something that the Impressionists were very much involved with. They, they were kind of uh, socialists, like more liberal. Uh, they, they were in a liberal world, and their liberal world said to them, um, everything, is, everything is important. Anything that looks trite, trivial, regular, uh, all of that is really very special, very unique, very... So that was the... The workers and the haystacks. That we have over here, you see. In other words, I, I don't think that you have to interpret it that way, but generally that's the way it's interpreted. That the Impressionist painters were involved with um, looking at the world and seeing how they could mush everything together. You know, everybody was the same. Before that, they used to paint kings and queens and, uh, and high flyers who could afford to pay for the paintings. But the Impressionists said they're going to paint real. And then all these high flyers would get dressed up, they'd wear their fancy costumes and, and uniforms, and then they would be painted in those fancy kinds of, uh, uh, uniforms, those fancy uniforms. But the Impressionists said, let's paint people. Let's see what they look like. Let's paint what they look like. And so there was a political statement and an economic statement and also a statement about reality. They're the ones who said that people are important, not designations, not, uh, uh, not your titles, but the people. The people themselves are important. That was also part of the art, part of the art. The Russian-born American painter Mark Rothko, a particular interest of Rabbi Bravender's, rounded out our visit to the museum as we considered modern abstract Impressionism, looking at his untitled 1955 painting. This is a painting that was done by an artist whose name, who called himself Rothko. He had a longer name when he was born. And he lived in the, he grew up in the West Coast. He came from Russia as a child and grew up in the West Coast and then moved to the East Coast, went to Yale, I think, and uh, studied something or other. And then became a painting and a painter. And during his lifetime, he had, he was like very involved in different kinds of styles of painting. He started from much more real, realistic kind of painting a very abstract kind of painting. And this is the, this painting was done, this is the only one they have here in the museum. Let me just see. Uh, 1955. This painting was done in 1955. He died in around 1965, what? 70? Died in 1970, 55. This is one of the early paintings that he did in this style that he created. But he, he did this on his own. And what he did was, 
I mean, you'd have to tell me what what is this? What do you think? I mean, the top or the bottom? It's a window. I mean, it's a picture of a window. Well, you said it. So you either stand behind it or you don't. Okay. What's your name? Ilan. Ilan says it's a window. It is. Is the window open or closed, Ilan? I would say it would be open. You would say, how does it open? Up and down or out like European windows? Up and down. So it's open? It would seem to me that the bottom part is the open and closing section. And it's been slid down. Oh, you push the window down, you mean? So it's open, it's down, mm-hmm. and it's closed, it's up. Yeah. That's where your air conditioner goes. On the bottom? <laughs> right? I see. What do you see, air conditioning? Yeah, that's where the window unit goes. People look at paintings, they think they're Rorschach tests. You have to see something. You have to see something. Does somebody have another suggestion? Do we, like, move away from the window to some other, other suggestion? Right, it's a very yeah, simple. A what? A door? Oh, it couldn't be a door. How could it be a door? It looks like a screen door, you know? Yeah. The bottom is oh, the bottom square, and then there's a window in the door. Well, let's look at it this way. Let's, you want to try the colors? Yeah. Okay, there's a color. Uh, what's the color on top? The big color. What? Orange, if you Orange? Not orange. The the window. Blue. Blue. So it is a window. Blue. blue. Sky blue. Sky blue. But is it all the same color? No, you no. can see orange no. with it. Well, I mean, does it does the blue of it change as you go down from down uh, top to down? Well, I see spot like light sponges of orange. What? Like what? Sponges. Like I, or a light sponge yeah, or something. And what about the bottom? Yeah. What color is on the bottom? And what about, isn't there yellow in there someplace? Yeah. It was yellow on top of orange. You told you definitely had orange here first. So wait a second. So there's a square on top. So I mean a rectangle on top, which is mostly blue. And there's a rectangle on the bottom, which is orange with yellow on it, right? Isn't that right? You can right. tell. Yeah. And in between the rectangle on the top of the rectangle on the bottom, Good. Thank you. That's good. Excellent. You're better than an electronic uh, thing. So you have this. You have this bar, right? You have this bar which separates the top and the bottom. Now, furthermore, everything on the paint. If we, if that's the painting, the the blue top and the orange yellow bottom, everything is surrounded by. My orange. Is that all orange? <coughs> you know, there's this orange yeah. this way, and there's an orange that separates the top and the bottom. Mm-hmm. All that is true. Yes. There's one other thing that's true about the painting. The inside lines of the painting are ragged. Is what? They're ragged. They're not oh, sharp. Yeah. It's not drawn with a ruler. Like, like this. This line is ragged, and this line is ragged, and the lines that connect are also ragged, and this line is ragged, and in other words, it's not sharply defined geometrically. It's very loosely defined. In fact, the, the paint spills 
from the inside, we could say, to the outside, from the inside color to the outside color. It takes away, and certainly on the top, the blue takes away from the orange. Because you see over here, you see here? Well, it's kind of um, imperfect, right? It's kind of imperfect. So, what is this a painting of? Based idea, on, probably. Well, before we get to the idea, it's a painting of something. What's it a painting of? Well, how can you paint something of nothing? That's a modern painting of Ah, good, very good. It's a painting of colors. There's a color on top. There's a color on the bottom. And there's a frame. There's a color that frames the color on the top and the color on the bottom. So even though we know that the... Uh, I mean, these colors, do you recognize these colors? Are they the colors of the rainbow? Or are they different colors? the colors of the rainbow. Yeah, okay. But if I would separate out the colors of the rainbow into individual colors... Would I get any of these colors? Yeah. I don't think so. That you have well, to get not, a mixture. They're not the exact. You're right. They're not red, exact. Orange, yellow, green. Correct. Purple. They're not exact. So what are they? If Very they're not exact, what? Yeah, but how do you variate colors? You mix them. You mix them. You So you have a color on top that's really not a, a color in nature, so to speak. You have to make it, and the color on the bottom you also have to make. And then the color of the orange that goes on the boundary you also have to make. Right? Right. So if you, if you were thinking of, if you were thinking of the way the creation of the world is described in the Torah, let's say, you had nothing else to do. You were thinking of the way the world was created. So what was the, uh, what was the word that describes mostly about creation? What word is the most significant word in Perak Aleph of Breshit? The word Vayavdel. Again, what was the most significant word in Breshit? I think the word is Vayavdel, to separate. Things existed, mixed in together with each other, but then they were separated. So I think that what Rothko is trying to do is connect me to creation. Because what is creation about? Creation is about limiting the space of the colors, of the light. In other words, we all know that God created light. And we also know that God took the light out of the world because it couldn't, the world couldn't function properly with that light. So that's what Rothko is doing. He's trying to express that part of, uh, of creation in the world in which we live. We live in this world where there's a green and there's a yellow and there's an orange, but they're not really quite perfect. They're not perfect lights. That's what I think Rothko is doing in this, in this painting. Okay.